Okay, you guys, here we go. She Runs Ultras episode number 83, the one where I answer all of your questions about the Tahoe 200. So originally, my intention was to do this as part of the last episode, but that one got so incredibly long that I decided it was probably better to break it up into two parts. And based on the feedback that I'm getting from you guys, you're thoroughly enjoying that episode, the one where I incorporate all the audio notes and the perspectives and just all the things. So I know that you guys are going to love this one too. So let's just jump right in because I got some really good questions about the Tahoe 200 experience and I want to sort of dig right into them. I got probably like two dozen questions and a lot of them were repeats. So I've sort of aggregated them into the top. I think there's 13 questions here. I made some notes for myself. Um, they're about th- 12 or 13 questions and we'll just sort of go through them systematically. So the first one was, do you feel like your training prepared you well for the event? Um, my answer to this is yes, because I finished, (laughs) but there are always the feelings of, should I be doing something more or something differently? Especially since this was my first time or my first attempt at this distance, there's always going to be some doubt about, am I doing it right? So I recently, it's funny because like I recently did an interview for the local paper here in town about the race and the reporter asked me a very similar question. He was really very interested in what I did specifically, like the specific workouts, the strength, the mobility, like all the very, like in detail, the things that I did to train for this event. And I sort of just reiterated my philosophy on how I go about doing this, which is basically looking at the event on the whole and trying to understand what the physical requirements will be in order to complete it. So for 200 miles, there's a lot of factors that go into this. And then from there, I would just take my focus, sort of like flip the mirror around onto my own body and assess how my current capacity lines up with what I think I'm going to need to do the race. And I've sort of talked about this before, but what you need in order to complete a half marathon, a marathon, a 50K is going to be very different than what you need for 50 miles, 100K, 100 miles, 200 miles. So we sort of have to look at each of them individually. It's not like the way that you're going to train for that 50K is exactly the way that you would do for 200 miles. And then using all of that information and setting to work training the component parts of my body to be able to meet the demands of the race. So hips and knees and ankles and spine and shoulders, all of the things. And then a separate layer of that is the actual running layer, the miles, right? Logging the miles and making sure that I can physically go the distance. Um, And while I would have probably liked to have done more in my training in terms of mileage, I had to factor into this decision the fact that I had just done a hundred miler back in October of 2021. So my body wasn't all that far removed from that hundred mile experience. And I didn't really feel like I needed to do it again so soon in order to prepare, even though I was also still having these feelings of maybe I should be doing some miles um, because I'm going to run 200 miles. And one of the other questions that that reporter asked me was, you know, how many miles do you do? Like, what's your longest run in preparation for this? I think it would probably surprise some of you guys that my longest run to prep for this particular 200 was a 50K. 
Now, again, keep in mind, I had just done 100 miles in October. So it was a little while ago, but it also wasn't that long ago. Had I not done that 100 miler so recently, I definitely would have picked something longer. The other factor that played into this was it was winter here, right? When I first started training, it was basically December of 2021. Um, And it's winter here in New Hampshire. So there was snow and ice and all that stuff. And I'm not somebody who stops training when the weather gets bad. I just work around it. But I also don't have a treadmill, a running treadmill. I have a desk treadmill, but I don't have a running one. Um, So, you know, I had to factor that in. There were definitely some days that I had to alter my training because the weather was just too dangerous. It was too icy. You know, the visibility was low, whatever, was too cold, whatever. But on the whole, I had to work around training for the winter. So I guess all in all, the long answer to the short question is yes, I think that my training adequately prepared me for this event. All right. The next question was, how well did your logistics line up with your plans? I thought about this one for a while because the logistics is a big part of running 200 miles. And I think we did the best that we could with the resources that we had at our disposal. Now, none of us had 200 mile experience. All of us had had uh, experience at a hundred miles, either running or crewing or pacing. So we were familiar with that distance, but I did have the opportunity to speak with friends that did the race back in 2018. So I was able to sort of get firsthand information about their experiences and understand sort of what worked for them, what didn't work for them and factor those into my planning. The other thing that I will say is that this race series in particular, Destination Trails, they do a really great job and put together a very comprehensive racer runner manual with all the information that you will ever need in order to prepare. So that was crucial. I read through that a lot. I kept referring back to it. I, you know, thought about all the different components of the race um, that they outline in there and started to just really wrap my brain around how are we going to get me from point A to point B to C, like through all those aid stations to the halfway mark and then back again. The other nice thing was someone in the Facebook group, the Tahoe 200 Facebook group, put together a pacing spreadsheet, basically an Excel spreadsheet that did all the fancy calculations for your pace and your projected time that you would arrive into the aid station. It helped you factor in how long you wanted to stay in the aid station. And then again, it did all the fancy math to tell you how many hours you would finish in so that you knew how close to the cutoffs you were. So we relied on that a lot to help us calculate where Frank and Adam needed to be and at what time in order to meet me. Now, if you listened to the previous episode, you'll know that I sort of blew that out of the water a couple times, but it really did help us to do the quick math without having to do the long form math in our heads on the fly like that. Again, I mentioned it in the previous episode, like Frank would spend time on that spreadsheet while we were walking and running to sort of be projecting and helping me figure out, okay, can I sleep here? Do I have to go faster? All of those different decisions. And then I really spent a lot of time thinking through my logistics for drop bags and pacing. Um, I spent hours sort of sitting here in my office, looking at that runner manual, thinking about the different intervals of mileage between each of the aid stations and really trying to live into the idea 
of me in the future. I've already run 65 miles. What am I going to want in my drop bag when I get to this place? And so that's really how I approached my drop bag and the pacing and the logistics, just really trying to spend time quietly thinking through each of those individual aid stations, the mileage, my physical wants and needs to try to figure out how we were going to make this happen. Um, and with all that said, I think we did an awesome job for our first time around at 200 miles. Um, and I say we, but literally all I had to do was run from aid station to aid station. And Adam and Frank did all of the hard work in terms of timing their arrivals appropriately, schlepping all my gear, washing all of my dirty gear. Frank ran with me for three consecutive straight nights. I mean, that's a lot of work. They have to severely alter their schedules in order to make those things happen such to the point that they're like sleeping and eating at odd hours of the day and night like their circadian rhythms are are all off like it's the real logistic credit goes to them because again all I had to do was run slash walk from one place to another and they did all the you know back behind the scenes work so Again, another high five round of applause goes out to my crew. All right. Question number three, what worked and what didn't on race day? Honestly, I would have to say that most everything worked on race day and the things that you might classify as didn't work or were sort of, I don't know, just like things that you would say that they didn't work. They're not necessarily failures on anyone's part. It's just the nature of the beast. So for example... One of the things that I would say didn't work was that by day three, I was tired of tailwind. (laughs) I mean, who wouldn't be (laughs) if that was your primary hydration source and you were drinking it basically for three days straight, like who wouldn't be sick of tailwind, no matter what flavor you swapped in there. So, um, I did alternate with water and with ginger ale and I, I had some element that I could have used, but I didn't want to introduce something that had the potential to mess things up. Like there were times when my stomach was a little tenuous and I could have introduced something new and I just sort of chose to grin and bear it and continue on with the tailwind. And I, to this moment right now, we're almost three weeks removed. I don't want tailwind (laughs) for a long time, even though it's my go-to solution for electrolytes and carbohydrates. So just like that, that's the nature of the beast. It didn't actually didn't work. It just is what it is. Another example of this would be my feet and all the blisters. Now I've gone a hundred miles and not had issues with my feet, but those conditions were different than the ones that I faced at Tahoe's. And I expected to have foot issues and I did. So it was less about the fact that there was, that something went wrong or didn't work and more about how do I adapt and overcome, which basically I had to do on the fly because I got more blisters in this one race that I have probably ever had in my entire, not probably, I did get more blisters in this one race than I have ever had in my entire running career to date. Um, So I just had to deal with it on the fly. I had to seek out the medics, have them help me, um, tape my feet. And then there was a certain part at which I just had to grin and bear it. So I wouldn't say that anything didn't work. It was just those sorts of things that were, you know, it's the nature of what you're doing, that stuff is going to go awry and you just have to work through it. So, I mean, I really never felt like I was missing anything gear wise. I had all the appropriate stuff. Um, 
Her logistics were good. I was prepared for the nighttime and for the weather. So, I mean, yeah, I I will say, I think like the mistake that I made, so I guess something that didn't work, I actually made this mistake twice, was getting behind on calories during two of the longer 20 mile stretches. So I had to make up for it when I got to the next aid station by consuming extra food and then taking more food with me on subsequent legs. Um, to make sure that I didn't get into a bigger deficit. So that was probably something that that didn't work. I just was sort of in a rush, I think, to leave those aid stations and thought that I had enough calories and then remembered, oh yeah, this is 20 miles with a lot of elevation change. So it's going to take you longer than you would normally for 20 miles and you miscalculated and you don't have enough food and you're tired of tailwind. <laughs> so, um, I won't be making that mistake again. So, but that's something that perhaps didn't work. Question number four, did you ever mentally or physically get to a place where you thought you might not finish? This is an interesting one. And the answer is yes. I hit a, a little bit of a low <laughs> during miles 75 to 100, where I got into this headspace where I was just like, how am I going to turn around and do this all over again? You know, like, I think a lot of us get to that place, especially if it's your longest race, you get to the halfway point and you're like, still have halfway to go. (laughs) Fortunately, it didn't last for too long. Even though I said it was during that 25 mile stretch, which is a long time, it, it wasn't persistent. It would sort of come and go, but it never fully consumed me. The last stretch into Heavenly was my, by far, least favorite part of the course. So this was where I sort of got into a deep, low thinking, how am I ever going to do this again, right? Like Like I might not finish. That stretch was challenging. I was doing it at night. I think it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1 to 3, 30 in the morning. It was a never ending climb that you couldn't see. So like I was just going up in the dark. It was dusty. I had started to, to develop that tunnel lung or tunnel cough that I talked about in the last episode that was taking people out of the race. I didn't know that at the time, but so I sort of describe it as a severe smoker's cough or hack. Um, and so it was just like a real low. It was It was low and Frank will attest to it. All I wanted to do was get to heavenly. I made mention of this several times on the run that all I wanted to do was get to heavenly, get into the back of the car that was already pre-warmed because it was getting a little cold. I wanted to strip down, wipe off all the dirt and just sleep. Um, And, and to their credit, Frank and Adam helped me do that, like to make that happen. So I felt just even mentally, that was such a big um, boost for me. And once I got up after a little bit of sleep, I felt much better. Um, And that sort of leads me to the next question, which was, at what point did you know, I've got this, I'm going to finish? I knew that I needed to get myself to the halfway point, 100 miles, because that was the longest I'd ever gone before. And if I could do that, then everything on top would be bonus miles. So Frank and I were joking, um about it like we would hit a mile marker or if I would hit a particular point where I was sort of quiet or low or you know not talking much he'd be he'd say to me hey Megan guess what 
and I'd be like, what, what Frank, what pearl of wisdom do you have to share with me? And he'd be like, this is officially as far as you've run. And that was sort of a, another mental boost. Cause I was like, oh yeah, right. Like I'm doing this. So I knew that I had to get myself to the hundred mile mark in order to figure out if I was going to be able to keep going. Um, in the last episode, I talked about how Ben had to drop and being close to the time cutoff and having to make up time. So as I was leaving Heavenly, my point of view was, I'm just going to do my best. I'm going to try to make up some time and have fun. And if I get timed out on the course, so be it. But I'm going to put forth the best effort that I can. And that's what I did. I mean, that's really how I started to build back up to a point where I was like, I've got this, I'm going to finish. During that first leg coming out of Heavenly, I was actually able to make up a bunch of time and I came in an hour and a half ahead of schedule, which was a real mental boost for me because that meant I wouldn't be racing the clock as hard as I just was. Like I left Heavenly with maybe an hour to spare and then I banked an hour and a half on top of that. So now I'm two and a half hours ahead of the time cut off. And I basically continued to do that each leg. My objective was to try and put more space between me and the cutoff for the next aid, aid station that I was coming to. And so over the course of the next hundred miles, I built back my time clock buffer to four hours, which was what I had going into the first hundred and what I wanted so that if things started to deteriorate as the miles ticked off, that I had time to play with in the end. So I guess it wasn't necessarily a specific point that I knew that I've got this, I'm going to finish. It was the last hundred miles where I was consistently moving, banking time, making up time, feeling really good, And everything was sort of the cherry on top of the first 100 miles. I mean, it was still hard, but once I got through that first 100 miles, I knew that I was going to finish. All I had to keep doing was just executing on the plan that we'd set forth at the beginning. And that's what I did. Question six was another good one. Basically, the person asked highest high, lowest low. And this is actually something I talk about a lot uh, with my one-on-one clients and in, in Run Your First 50K, we talk about how there's always going to be highs and always going to be lows. After every high is most likely a low and after every low is a high. So we sort of have to ride the wave. Um, so I think I sort of described my lowest low in the previous question, talking about the last, it was really the last four to five miles heading into Heavenly to complete the first 100 miles that was the low. It was just like, real low. (laughs) It was dark, (laughs) literally and figuratively. But I would have to say like another low would be the sleep running that I did headed into the final aid station, uh, Stephen Jones. And that was just more challenging physically. So I guess it wasn't really mentally a low. It was just more of a physical challenge since I was so exhausted. Um, But I didn't have the luxury of time to be able to sleep nor was there anywhere safe for me to do it since at that point we were in and out of these residential neighborhoods. So it would have been a little weird for me to just post up on the sidewalk in front in front of somebody's house. Because again, it was nighttime, late night. So anywhere between, I don't know, 11 and 
2 a.m. <laughs> and so like most people are going to be asleep, but it would would have been my luck that some random person needed to take their dog out and there would be me sleeping on the sidewalk with Frank sort of standing over me. Like, can you imagine <laughs> what, the, what the image of that would have been like? So anyway, I would say those are probably two low points. The highest high, I think that would have to be getting to the last aid station, Stephen Jones, where I was able to sleep for about 30 minutes and then knowing that I was going out for the last 10 miles with my husband, Adam, because that's when I knew that this whole thing, like the end to this, the finish was within striking distance. All I had to do was go up five miles and then down five miles, basically. That's a little more nuanced than that, but 10 miles, right? You have 10 miles left. That is a huge high when you can say, I've already gone 190 miles, which even saying that now, it's like, holy shit. (laughs) This is like, I've already gone 190 miles. All I have is 10 left. Like there is no reason why I can't do these 10. And I got to do it with my BFF, my husband. And it was a really fun 10 miles because it was when we left 5.30, 6 a.m., sun was about to come up. It was going to be a warm day, which it hadn't been for the four days previous, which I'm not complaining about because that was like the perfect temperature for me, but it was going to get warm and sunny and I was going to finish in the daytime. And I was super excited about that. I'm willing to bet though, that when this person asked this question, they expected that my highest high would have been the finish. Like, I'm sure they expected that that would be my answer, but honestly, that was a little bittersweet for me. I was excited to finish. Don't get me wrong. And I, and I'm, I was almost a little bit in shock, I think when I did, but it wasn't my highest moment because again, I sort of, I think I'm going to talk about this in a second in terms of like my mental frame of mind, but I expected myself to finish. So I went into this, you know, being nervous and scared and wondering and doubting and all that thing. But also at the same time, I expected myself to finish because that's how I operate. I don't go into these races races thinking, I don't know, who knows if I'm going to finish or not. Like that to me is not a viable strategy. I've done that before actually, and it's not a viable strategy. So when I go into a big race like this, like I expect to finish. So for me to say that my highest high was the finishing, I had already been there in my mind for a long time. Like I had already visualized that finish. I knew how it was going to go. I had already talked to my friends about how the finish went for them. Like I understood this at a very real level. So I had lived it through so many times that it was expected of me. And so that wasn't my high. I don't know that I'm accurately conveying the sentiment. I think maybe some of you guys will understand this, but it might be sort of a shock for you to hear me say that that wasn't my highest moment because again, I've mentioned this sort of in previous episodes, I'm more of a fan of the loving the process of all of this. So I really loved the process of running those 200 miles. Even as I sit here now, I'm sort of off topic now, but I'm on a roll. Even as I stand here and record this now, I am more excited and more enthralled and more in love with the process of having spent those four or five days out there and all of the time that it allowed me to sort of you know be with my friends and make new friends and like have these experiences by myself and 
you know, work through some problems and some challenges on my own by myself in the woods. And I'm trying not to get emotional about it, but like I'm more in love with that element of it than the actual finishing. The finish is really just the proof, the social proof of all of that hard work that I have been doing for the previous four days and then the previous seven, six or seven months. And even beyond that, like this, that finish isn't just about the work that I did in this training cycle. It is literally everything that I have done since I started this whole process 10 years ago. So yeah, I mean, highest high, lowest low. There's always going to be some of both and they're going to come and they're going to go and there's going to be a lot of them. There won't necessarily just be one high and one low. You're probably going to have to ride the wave of a few over the course of your race, just like I did for this one. So just be prepared for that. Question number seven, how did you do with the vert? This is a great question. Because honestly, if I had to name the thing that I was the most worried about, it would be the altitude. Now, I've been at altitude before, but that was, you know, a couple years ago. Doesn't really translate. Um, And all of the different components that I focused on in training, I was able to do here. But that one thing, that altitude thing, I I didn't get a chance to work on. I mean, I, I contemplated trying to take a trip out to get some altitude in, it just didn't line up, um, you know, with travel restrictions, didn't line up with a lot of different things. So I was worried that I was going to show up there. And then literally my fear was that I was going to get taken out in the first miles, the first 10 miles by the altitude, because I was going to get altitude sickness so much so that like, uh, when I went to get my, um, my physical, like my yearly physical, I talked to my PCP about this, um, medication that I had heard somebody else talk about somewhere. And I can't remember the name of it now. Ultimately we didn't end up doing it, but I was like, what about this medication for altitude sickness? Like I sort of wanted to prepare all viable options. Should this happen? Like I wanted a way to, even if I did get sick, I wanted to make sure that I had something that would help me solve that problem. But ultimately she, uh, she, she came back and she was like, eh, I'm not really feeling this. Like I'm not going to be there to monitor you while you take this medication. Like it's probably not a good idea. So I, I guess I am officially going to say that I winged it on the altitude, but that was sort of a calculated decision. So, you know, I, that wasn't, I guess it's not technically winging it because I really did decide we're just going to go and we're going to do this. And this is how we're going to handle it. My theory was that if I went into this really well-trained, that um, really well-trained from a cardiovascular perspective, that I wouldn't have any issues. And so what happened was I basically arrived the day before the race. I had a full day at about five or 6,000 feet of altitude to acclimate. And I would notice that, you know, like going up and down stairs was a little more challenging, but I wasn't gasping for breath. I didn't get sick. I didn't get any headaches. I didn't get any of that stuff. And I showed up on race day, still sort of worried that the first 10 miles were going to be too challenging and I was going to just be sucking wind and then not make the time cut off. I mean, that was really like largely the conversations that I had with Frank and Ben 
you know, like I don't want to get taken out in the first 10 miles. Like I'm just going to sort of go slow, but I'm also going to push it so that my body sort of has time to acclimate. The first two miles of the race are basically straight up the mountain. Um, and doing that, I could feel my lungs working hard, but I was never really gasping for breath. I just made the calculated decision to stop every so often when I started to feel a little more challenged. Like when I started to feel, you know, I don't know what, I don't know how else to describe it. Like I just never got to the gasping point, like maybe a little winded when I, and I would just stop for 10 to 30 seconds and then continue on. So as with the race progressed and we got closer to, you know, we basically worked our way up to 9,000 feet. I had to do the same thing, stop and rest. And then again, when the tunnel lung cough kicked in, same thing, pause, rest for a bit, and then keep going. So luckily there were no altitude issues for me. Like I said, I never got sick. I never got any headaches. It was just really challenging to breathe. And I sort of just took it in stride, rested when I needed, pause, take a lot of deep breaths. I think all of the breathing exercises that I do as part of my like regular training are really helpful. And so yeah, no altitude issues for me. Okay. Question eight thing that went the most smoothly and the thing that was the most unexpected. This was sort of easy. Uh, By far the most unexpected thing was having Ben drop at mile 50. Never saw that coming. Never in a million years would have saw that coming because he was feeling really good, super strong. He had just come off of a really good 50 mile race that he nailed. And so I never in a million years would have thought he was going to drop at um, 50 miles. But again, that was a a calculated decision that he made that was going to be best for him health wise. So by far the most unexpected, but totally understandable. The thing that went the most smoothly, I would definitely have to say, was my the crewing and the pacing. Um, with the length of this race and the remote locations and the timing of everything, there were lots of opportunities for things to go wrong. Like you heard Adam and Frank in the last episode talk about it. At the very beginning, their biggest fear was messing it up, missing me at an aid station, not having the things, you know, all that stuff but it didn't happen. Um, I mentioned this in the previous episode, but during that first day, my spot tracker wasn't updating. So Adam and Frank didn't know where I was on the course and had that kept up, it could have made life really difficult for them. And subsequently for me, because they wouldn't have been able to time their arrivals accordingly, because remember they couldn't go to the next aid station and camp out there. They had to time it because they didn't want an influx of people hanging around in these smaller parking lots and camping areas you know, if you have 250 people in the race and all of their crew, that can be a lot of people. So 30 minutes ahead of time was the window. You could get there up to 30 minutes in advance. And then when your runner left, you had to leave immediately after. So that could have made life really difficult if my spot tracker wasn't working and they had no idea where I was. Fortunately, that went off without a hitch from my perspective. (laughs) Like I'm sure if I had Frank and Adam on here that they might be able to tell some stories about, you know, stuff that went on behind the scenes, the scheming, the planning, like all the things that they had to do to pull this off. But it, for me on my end, it went super smooth because they were there every time ready to go. They had everything I needed. 
they anticipated a lot of the things that I needed. Some of that was because Frank would text ahead of time um, or I would text ahead of time. Um, but a lot of times I actually didn't have cell service. So I couldn't, because originally, I'd also mentioned this in the podcast, not to rehash the previous episode, but originally the plan was I'm going to text you when I'm going into the aid station, the ones that they couldn't meet me at. And then when I come out of the aid station so that they could sort of update that spreadsheet in real time so that they could calculate and know, you know, what my anticipated pace was and, and really keep track. Because I did want to then be able to pass on that information to you. And maybe Frank still has a version of the f- spreadsheet that is accurate or semi-accurate. I'll have to look and see. But that all went to hell. <laughs> Like almost immediately because I couldn't text them going in or out of the first aid station because it was so remote. And so after that, there was, I was just like, okay, well, the spot tracker is working. And then I found out from them not long after that it wasn't, but then it, it did sort of come back online and they were texting me and saying like, yeah, we can see you now. Did you just go here? I'd say yes. You know, that, that sort of thing. So that went really smoothly from my perspective. Question number nine, what did you and or your crew do to help you through the most challenging moments? I would have to say that my philosophy around these running races is always centered around forward progress and being very solution oriented. So regardless of what's going on around me or in my head, I'm always putting one foot in front of the other. And when stuff goes wrong, which it inevitably does, um, I don't dwell on it for more than 30 seconds before sort of flipping the switch into figuring out a solution. It's really easy to get bogged down in all of the things that go wrong or could go wrong from small things like, you know, getting a blister to big things like forgetting a piece of equipment or being behind on calories or whatever. And if that's what your brain spends time on, it is a really slippery slope to the bottom, which usually results in you tapping out. So over the years, I've just sort of gotten to this place where I view everything as neutral. Everything around me that happens, every person, every situation, every physical item, the environment, all of it, it's just neutral. And I don't get emotionally involved in any of it. Like, you know, if we saw something cool, we take a picture of it, I would get interested and excited about that. But I try not to get emotionally involved in the highs and the lows. I just keep figuring out what the next step is. So when Ben dropped, I was sad. We had a moment. I was upset about it. And then almost immediately, for self-preservation purposes, not because I, like, didn't want Ben to be there, because that obviously was not the case, like, but for self-preservation purposes, I had to flip the switch and be like, okay, new situation, Ben is no longer here, how do we do this? And just set to work, figuring out, okay, what's the next thing I have to do? Well, right now, I got to get some sleep, and then I got to get up, and I got to do Boom, 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 boom. This is what has to happen next. So the question really was, 
what did you or your crew do to help you through those challenging moments? And my answer to that is that they adopted this same mentality, which is crucial. Like they 100% understood the assignment and the assignment was to get me across the finish line. And they knew when to push me and when to just let me do my thing, which is really good because there were times when my brain was tired and I was sort of like lollygagging around and they would have to say to me, you know, kind of aggressively, like, eat this, put this on, you've got 15 minutes before you need to go, et cetera, et cetera, like whatever the circumstances were, right? And this is why having your crew on the same page is super important. Like, it's important that they understand the assignment, they know what your objectives are, like what your plan is, and how you want them to help you along the way. So, you know, really, it wasn't one particular thing that they did like one particular instance it's that that we were all on the same page we all understood the assignment and they all knew that we are a so like there was we are we are a solution oriented crew there was never a point at which we entertained any discussion about me not making the time cut off like even when i said it at heavenly they were like well no, that's not happening. Like, here's the next five things that we need to do. And they were on point. They got me up. They pointed me in the right direction. They force fed me food. Like, you know, they understood the assignment. So I just can't say it enough. Like having a crew that understands. And I always use the analogy, like we're all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. Like that was really the thing that they did that helped me through all the moments, like whether they were exciting or challenging, like we just were a cohesive crew in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. There was never any discussion about things that are going bad. We were always, always, always. And I'm like getting super pumped about this right now. It's like, we were always solutions focused and solutions oriented. Like, how are we going to get this done? So long answer to the short question, which is always my tendency to over explain and go on tangents. Okay. Question 10. What is your biggest takeaway or lesson learned? I thought about this one for a while And I would have to say that my biggest takeaway isn't a a new one for me, but rather it just reinforces what I already knew to be true. And that's that you can do anything that you set your mind to and that you never know what you're capable of unless you fucking try. (laughs) Um, I had a lot of doubt going into this. I talked about this before, like how the big question is always, how do you know if you can run 200 miles unless you've done it before and the answer is you don't but then every time I caught myself having one of those doubts thinking how the fuck am I going to do this I just had to remind myself that my results are directly tied to my thoughts my results are directly tied to my thoughts so if I think that I can do it or if I don't let's start this way if I don't think that I can do it then I'm not going to because I'm going to find all the evidence for why I won't be able to accomplish the goal like, that's pretty simple. I think you could probably find evidence of this being true within your own life, right? And if all I do is think and find evidence for the fact that I'm going to do it, then that's what I'm going to do. It's a real simplistic explanation. 
honestly, for a process that's harder to execute in real time, especially when all you want to do is have a pity party for yourself. And I've had many over the years, but the key is to focus hard on your thoughts and to get right back on the horse, so to speak, so that you don't reinforce the repetitive downward thought spiral. So again, even if I, something went wrong, like when I was behind on calories, I didn't spend more than 30 seconds beating myself up about it, mostly because there wasn't really anything I could do at that point. But I did get to work trying to figure out a solution. I was like, okay, I could, you know, I could um, ask somebody else if they have extra calories that they're willing to part with. I can ration the ones that I have and sort of, instead of just eating everything I have right now, spread it out over the next four or five hours. And that's ultimately what I ended up doing. Plus I had a full bladder of tailwind, even though I was so tired of drinking it. (laughs) Um, I had another probably 400 calories in my bladder of tailwind. So 400 plus whatever I had left over, I was, you know, starting to do some math. Solutions focused really is what it comes down to, right? So again, the biggest, again, I'm sort of off track, but the biggest takeaway, the biggest lesson that I learned was just reinforcing that like, I knew that I could do this and I can do anything that I set my mind to and that my mind, my thoughts are what I, what I end up with in terms of results are directly tied to how I think, what I think, what I allow myself to think, what I allow others to say in my presence. Um, and so it really comes back to that. You never know what you're capable of unless you try and you just got to go out and try. You just got to do it. You can't sit back and spend your whole life questioning whether you should do it or not do it or whatever. You just got to, you just got to go do it. <laughs> it's super cliche. It's like the Nike, just do it <laughs> ad, but that's my reinforcement of the lesson that I already knew to be true. Okay. Question 11. This is the one that everyone is asking. I think I addressed it on the, on the last episode, but the question is, will you do it again? So I mentioned having that interview with the reporter for the newspaper article. That was one of the very first questions. He sort of went out of order when we were talking, but that was one of the very first questions he asked me, will you do it again? And the, the God's honest truth is, I don't know, maybe, um, I'm still in this phase of giving myself some time to recover and reflect on the experience. I mean, it still doesn't feel real. I don't think I have fully absorbed the fact that I did it, even though I have the belt buckle and the pictures to prove it and evident like I have witnesses <laughs> like I did it but I don't think I have still fully absorbed the fact that I have gone 200 miles so I don't think I'll be able to figure out what's next until I do so I need a little bit more time um and I'm gonna have to give it a lot of thought to see what I want to come up with I mean again I I know I talked about this in the last episode it's like what comes after this? You know, there are longer races like the Moab 240 and, you know, Cocodona, which is 250. I mean, there's, there's longer races. I certainly could do a longer race, but what's the limit? Like, when is it enough? You know, what do I have to prove? So these are some of the questions that I am sort of currently pondering about what I'm going to do. So I don't know, you guys, 
I would recommend it though. Like I would recommend the Tahoe 200. Like if you want to do a 200 mile race, you, you can't beat the conditions, the, the views, the climbs. It's just, it's an epic race on all fronts. So I would highly recommend it if you want to do it. And maybe I'll do it again because, you know, there are definite things that I could have done better. Um, and who knows, like maybe I would have a, a more successful outcome. Maybe I would be able to do it faster, but who knows? Maybe, maybe the next time I would DNF, you never, you never know. But right now I'm just enjoying my time off, letting my body recover and sort of getting back to moving easy and building back up from there. I'm still finding that, you know, even 15 minutes worth of like a strength um, workout on the TRX is challenging in real time. And then I sort of feel tired afterwards. So I'm definitely not fully recovered. So I'm just going to sort of work up and start to come back online a little more slowly here. So speaking of recovery, um, I've gotten a lot of questions about like what I'm doing for recovery. And so that's actually going to be the topic for the next episode, rest and recovery. Um, it's such a big part, or at least it should be of your ultra training. Um, and it seems easy enough, like it should be easy, but I know that many of you guys struggle with it because I hear about it from you, both with my clients and from posts and in group in group coaching programs, but it's got to get worked in there because when you do, your training actually gets a lot easier and your results actually get a lot better. So what we're going to do in the next episode is talk about what is rest? What defines rest? How do you do it? How do you work it into your routine? How much, how little on what days? Um, we're going to kind of dive into all of that plus a little bit more. So if you've got questions about this, you can shoot them to me via DM over Instagram, uh, at find your ultra, or you can email them to me, Megan at Megan school.com. That's Megan with an H. I'll put all of that in the show notes too. Um, But thank you, you guys. Thanks to everybody who submitted questions for this. I'm sure there are outstanding questions and I'm happy to answer those. So if I didn't answer a question that you had, send it to me and I'll answer you directly. Oh, I forgot. (laughs) I always do this. One more quick thing before you go. I don't know if you saw, but the next round of Run Your First 50K starts on Monday, July 25th. So this is my group coaching program for women, six weeks that is focused on teaching you everything you need to know to successfully get across the finish line of your very first 50K. Everything from race strategy, to mindset, to a training plan, to strength and mobility, to gear, all of the things so that when you're done, when you've hit the six week mark and you graduate from the program, you have a personalized plan that's going to get you across the finish line of that race. If you want to join us, you need to apply. You need to go to www.runyourfirst50k. That's where you'll get all the information. You'll be able to apply. You'll be able to see exactly what it's all about. So don't forget, we start on Monday, July 25th, and applications actually close Wednesday, July 20th. So don't wait, get your application in today, and I'll see you in the program. All right, you guys, that's all for this episode. Enjoy this beat, and I'll see you all soon.